Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche Chapter 4 How the True World Ultimately Became a Fable The History of an Error 1. The true world, attainable to the sage, the pious man, and the man of virtue, he lives in it, he is it. The most ancient form of the idea was relatively clever, simple, convincing. It was a paraphrase of the proposition, I, Plato, am the truth. 2. The true world which is unattainable for the moment is promised to the sage, to the pious man, and to the man of virtue. Quote, to the sinner who repents. Unquote. Progress of the idea. It becomes more subtle, more insidious, more evasive. It becomes a woman. It becomes Christian. 3. The true world is unattainable, it cannot be proved, it cannot promise anything. But even as a thought alone, it is a comfort, an obligation, a command. At bottom this is still the old sun, but seen through mist and skepticism. The idea has become sublime, pale, northern, Königsbergian. 4. The true world. Is it unattainable? At all events, it is unattained. And, as unattained, it is also unknown. Consequently, it no longer comforts, nor saves, nor constrains. What could something unknown constrain us to? The gray of dawn. Reason stretches itself and yawns for the first time. The cock-crow of positivism. 5. The true world. An idea that no longer serves any purpose, that no longer constrains one to anything. A useless idea that has become quite superfluous, consequently an exploded idea. Let us abolish it. Bright daylight, breakfast, the return of common sense and of cheerfulness. Plato blushes for shame, and all free spirits kick up a shindy. 6. We have suppressed the true world. What world survives? 
the apparent world, perhaps? Certainly not. In abolishing the true world we have also abolished the world of appearance. Noon, the moment of the shortest shadows, the end of the longest error, mankind's zenith, insipid Zarathustra. End chapter 4 This recording is in the public domain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche Chapter 5 Morality as the Enemy of Nature 1. There is a time when all passions are simply fatal in their action, when they wreck their victims with the weight of their folly. And there is a later period, a very much later period, when they marry with the spirit, when they spiritualize themselves. Formerly, owing to the stupidity inherent in passion, men waged war against passion itself. Men pledged themselves to annihilate it. All ancient moral mongers were unanimous on this point. Il faut tuer les passions. The most famous formula for this stands in the New Testament, in that Sermon on the Mount, where, let it be said incidentally, things are by no means regarded from a height. It is said there, for instance, with an application to sexuality, If thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. Fortunately, no Christian acts in obedience to this precept. To annihilate the passions and desires simply on account of their stupidity, and to obviate the unpleasant consequences of their stupidity, seems to us today merely an aggravated form of stupidity. We no longer admire those dentists who extract teeth simply in order that they may not ache again. On the other hand, it will be admitted with some reason that on the soil from which Christianity grew, the idea of the spiritualization of passion could not possibly have been conceived. The early church, as everyone knows, certainly did wage war against the intelligent in favor of the poor in spirit. In these circumstances, how could the passions be combated intelligently? The church combats passion by means of excision of all kinds. Its practice, its remedy, is castration. It never inquires, how can a desire be spiritualized, beautified, deified? In all ages, it has laid the weight of discipline in the process of extirpation, the extirpation of sensuality, pride, lust of dominion, lust of property, and revenge. But to attack the passions at the roots means attacking life itself at its source. The method of the church is hostile to life. 
2. The same means, castration and extirpation, are instinctively chosen for waging war against a passion by those who are too weak of will, too degenerate, to impose some sort of moderation upon it. By those natures who, to speak in metaphor, and without metaphor, need la trappe, or some kind of ultimatum of war, a gulf set between themselves and a passion. Only degenerates find radical methods indispensable. Weakness of will, or more strictly speaking, the inability not to react to a stimulus, is in itself simply another form of degeneracy. Radical and moral hostility to sensuality remains a suspicious symptom. It justifies one in being suspicious of the general state of one who goes to such extremes. Moreover, that hostility and hatred reach their height only when such natures no longer possess enough strength of character to adopt the radical remedy to renounce their inner Satan. Look at the whole history of the priests, the philosophers, and the artists as well. The most poisonous diatribes against the senses have not been said by the impotent, nor by the ascetics, but by those impossible ascetics, by those who found it necessary to be ascetics. 3. The spiritualization of sensuality is called love. It is a great triumph over Christianity. Another triumph is our spiritualization of hostility. It consists in the fact that we are beginning to realize very profoundly the value of having enemies. In short, that with them we are forced to do and to conclude precisely the reverse of what we previously did and concluded. In all ages the Church wished to annihilate its enemies. We, the immoralists and antichrists, see our advantage in the survival of the church. Even in political life, hostility has now become more spiritual, much more cautious, much more thoughtful, and much more moderate. Almost every party sees its self-preservative interests in preventing the opposition from going to pieces, and the same applies to politics on a grand scale. A new creation, more particularly, like the new empire, has more need of enemies than friends. Only as a contrast does it begin to feel necessary. Only as a contrast does it become necessary. And we behave in precisely the same way to the inner enemy. In this quarter, too, we have spiritualized enmity. In this quarter, too, we have understood its value. A man is productive only in so far as he is rich in contrasted instincts. He can remain young only on condition that his soul does not begin to take things easy and to yearn for peace. Nothing has grown more alien to us than that old desire, the peace of the soul, which is the aim of Christianity. Nothing could make us less envious than the moral cow and the plump happiness of a clean conscience. The man who has renounced war has renounced a grand life. In many cases, of course, 
peace of the soul is merely a misunderstanding. It is something very different which has failed to find a more honest name for itself. Without either circumlocution or prejudice, I will suggest a few cases. Peace of the soul may, for instance, be the sweet effulgence of rich animality in the realm of morality, or religion, or the first presage of weariness, the first shadow that evening, every kind of evening, is wont to cast, or a sign that the air is moist, and that winds are blowing up from the south, or unconscious gratitude for a good digestion, sometimes called brotherly love, or the serenity of the convalescent, on whose lips all things have a new taste, and who bides his time, or the condition which follows upon a thorough gratification of our strongest passion, the well-being of unaccustomed satiety, or the senility of our will, of our desires, and of our vices, or laziness, coaxed by vanity into togging itself out in a moral garb, or the ending of a state of long suspense and of agonizing uncertainty, by a state of certainty, of even terrible certainty, or the expression of ripeness and mastery in the midst of a task, of a creative work, of a production, of a thing willed, the calm breathing that denotes that freedom of will has been attained. Who knows? Maybe the twilight of the idols is only a sort of peace of the soul. 4. I will formulate a principle. All naturalism in morality, that is to say, every sound morality, is ruled by a life instinct. Any one of the laws of life is fulfilled by the definite canon, Thou shalt, thou shalt not, and any sort of obstacle or hostile element in the road of life is thus cleared away. Conversely, the morality which is antagonistic to nature, that is to say, almost every morality that has been taught, honored, and preached hitherto, is directed precisely against the life instincts. It is a condemnation, now secret, now blatant and impudent, of these very instincts. Inasmuch as it says, God sees into the heart of man, it says nay to the profoundest and most superior desires of life, and takes God as the enemy of life. The saint in whom God is well pleased is the ideal eunuch, Life terminates where the kingdom of God begins. 5. Admitting that you have understood the villainy of such a mutiny against life as that which has become almost sacrosanct in Christian morality, you have fortunately understood something besides, and that is the futility, the fictitiousness, the absurdity, and the falseness of such a mutiny. For the condemnation of life by a living creature is, after all, but the symptom of a definite kind of life. The question as to whether the condemnation is justified, or the reverse, 
is not even raised. In order even to approach the problem of the value of life, a man would need to be placed outside life, and, moreover, know it as well as one, as many, as all, in fact, who have lived it. These are reasons enough to prove to us that this problem is an inaccessible one to us. When we speak of values, we speak under the inspiration and through the optics of life. Life itself urges us to determine values. Life itself values through us when we determine values. From which it follows that even that morality which is antagonistic to life, and which conceives God as the opposite and the condemnation of life, is only a valuation of life. Of what life? Of what kind of life? But I have already answered this question. It is the valuation of declining, of enfeebled, of exhausted, and of condemned life. Morality, as it has been understood hitherto, as it was finally formulated by Schopenhauer in the words, the denial of the will to life, is the instinct of degeneration itself, which converts itself into an imperative. It says, perish. It is the death sentence of men who are already doomed. 6. Let us at last consider how exceedingly simple it is on our part to say, man should be thus and thus. Reality shows us a marvelous wealth of types, and a luxuriant variety of forms and changes. And yet the first wretch of a moral loafer that comes along cries, No! Man should be different! He even knows what man should be like does this sanctimonious prig. He draws his own face on the wall and declares, Ecce homo! But even when the moralist addresses himself only to the individual, and says, Thus and thus shouldst thou be, he still makes an ass of himself. The individual in his past and future is a piece of fate, one law the more, one necessity the more for all that is to come and is to be. To say to him, change thyself, is tantamount to saying that everything should change, even backwards as well. Truly these have been consistent moralists. They wished man to be different, i.e. virtuous. They wished him to be after their own image, that is to say, sanctimonious humbugs. And to this end, they denied the world. No slight form of insanity, no modest form of immodesty. Morality, in so far as it condemns per se, and not out of any aim, consideration, or motive of life, is a specific error, for which no one should feel any mercy, a degenerate idiosyncrasy, that has done an unalterable amount of harm. We others... We immoralists, on the contrary, have opened our hearts wide to all kinds of comprehension, understanding, and approbation. We do not deny readily. We glory in saying yea to things. 
our eyes have opened ever wider and wider to that economy which still employs and knows how to use to its own advantage all that which the sacred craziness of priests and the morbid reason in priests rejects to that economy in the law of life which draws its own advantage even out of the repulsive race of bigots the priests and the virtuous what advantage but we ourselves we immoralists are the reply to this question End chapter five This recording is in the public domain This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche Chapter 6 The Four Great Errors 1. The Error of the Confusion of Cause and Effect There is no more dangerous error than to confound the effect with the cause. I call this error the intrinsic perversion of reason. Nevertheless, this error is one of the most ancient and most recent habits of mankind. In one part of the world it has even been canonized. It bears the name of, quote, religion, unquote, and, quote, morality, unquote. Every postulate formulated by religion and morality contains it. Priests and the promulgators of moral laws are the promoters of this perversion of reason. Let me give you an example. Everybody knows the book of the famous Cornaro, in which he recommends his slender diet as the recipe for a long, happy, and also virtuous life. Few books have been so widely read, and to this day, Many thousand copies of it are still printed annually in England. I do not doubt that there is scarcely a single book, the Bible of course excepted, that has worked more mischief, shortened more lives than this well-meant curiosity. The reason of this is the confusion of effect and cause. This worthy Italian saw the cause of his long life in his diet, whereas the prerequisites of long life which are exceptional slowness of molecular change and a low rate of expenditure in energy, were the cause of his meagre diet. He was not at liberty to eat a small or a great amount. His frugality was not the result of free choice. He would have been ill had he eaten more. He who does not happen to be a carp, however, is not only wise to eat well, but is also compelled to do so. A scholar of the present day, with his rapid consumption of nervous energy, would soon go to the dogs on Cornaro's diet. Crede experto. 2. The most general principle 
lying at the root of every religion and morality, is this. Quote, Do this and that, and avoid this and that, and thou wilt be happy. Otherwise, unquote. Every morality and every religion is this imperative. I call it the great original sin of reason, immortal unreason. In my mouth this principle is converted into its opposite, first example of my transvaluation of all values. A well-constituted man, a man who is one of nature's lucky strokes, must perform certain actions and instinctively fear other actions. He introduces the element of order, of which he is the physiological manifestation into his relations with men and things. In a formula, his virtue is the consequence of his good constitution. Longevity and plentiful offspring are not the reward of virtue. Virtue itself is on the contrary, that retardation of the metabolic process which, among other things, results in a long life and in plentiful offspring, in short, in cornerism. The church and morality say, quote, a race, a people, perish through vice and luxury, unquote. My reinstantiated reason says, when a people are going to the dogs, when they are degenerating physiologically, vice and luxury, that is to say, the need of ever stronger and more frequent stimuli such as all exhausted natures are acquainted with, are bound to result. Such and such a young man grows pale and withered prematurely. His friends say this or that illness is the cause of it. I say, the fact that he became ill, the fact that he did not resist illness, was in itself already the outcome of impoverished life, of hereditary exhaustion. The newspaper reader says, Such and such a party, by committing such an error, will meet its death. My superior politics say, A party that can make such mistakes is in its last agony. It no longer possesses any certainty of instinct. Every mistake is, in every sense, the sequel to degeneration of the instincts, to disintegration of the will. This is almost the definition of evil. Everything valuable is instinct, and consequently easy, necessary, free. Exertion is an objection. The god is characteristically different from the hero. In my language, light feet are the first attribute of divinity. 3. The Error of False Causality In all ages, men have believed that they knew what a cause was. But whence did we derive this knowledge, or, more accurately, this faith in the fact that we know? out of the realm of the famous inner facts of consciousness, not one of which has yet proved itself to be a fact. 
We believed ourselves to be causes, even in the action of the will. We thought that in this matter at least we caught causality red-handed. No one doubted that all the antecedentia of an action were to be sought in consciousness, and could be discovered there as motive, if only they were sought. Otherwise we should not be free to perform them. We should not have been responsible for them. Finally, who would have questioned that a thought is caused, that the ego causes the thought? Of these three facts of inner consciousness, by means of which causality seemed to be guaranteed, the first and most convincing is that of the will as cause. A conception of consciousness, spirit, as a cause, and subsequently that of the ego, the subject, as a cause, were merely born afterwards, once the causality of the will stood established as given, as a fact of experience. Meanwhile, we have come to our senses. Today we no longer believe a word of all this. The, quote, inner world, unquote, is full of phantoms and will-o'-the-wisps. The will is one of these. The will no longer actuates. Consequently, it no longer explains anything. All it does is to accompany processes. It may even be absent. The so-called, quote, motive, unquote, is another error. It is merely a ripple on the surface of consciousness, a side issue of the action, which is much more likely to conceal than to reveal the antecedentia of the latter. And as for the ego, it has become legendary, fictional, a play upon words. It has ceased utterly and completely from thinking, feeling, and willing. What is the result of it all? There are no such things as spiritual causes. The whole of popular experience on this subject went to the devil. That is the result of it all. For we had blissfully abused that experience. We had built the world upon it as a world of causes, as a world of will, as a world of spirit. The most antiquated and most traditional psychology has been at work here. It has done nothing else. All phenomena were deeds in the light of this psychology, and all deeds were the result of will. According to it, the world was a complex mechanism of agents. An agent, a, quote, subject, unquote, lay at the root of all things. Man projected his three, quote, inner facts of consciousness, unquote, the will, the spirit, and the ego, in which he believed most firmly, outside himself. He first deduced the concept being out of the concept ego. He supposed, quote, things, unquote, to exist, as he did himself, according to his notion of the ego as cause. Was it to be wondered at that later on, he always found in things only that which he had laid in them. The thing itself, I repeat, the concept thing, was merely a reflex of the belief in the ego as cause.
and even your atom, my dear good mechanists and physicists. What an amount of error, of rudimentary psychology, still adheres to it, not to speak of the thing in itself, of the horrendum pudendum of the metaphysicians. The error of spirit, regarded as a cause, confounded with reality, and made the measure of reality, and called God. 4. The Error of Imaginary Causes Starting out from dreamland, we find that to any definite sensation, like that produced by a distant cannon shot, for instance, we are wont to ascribe a cause after the fact. Very often, quite a little romance in which the dreamer himself is, of course, the hero. Meanwhile, the sensation becomes protracted, like a sort of continuous echo, until, as it were, the instinct of causality allows it to come to the front rank, no longer, however, as a chance occurrence, but as a thing which has some meaning. The cannon shot presents itself in a causal manner, by means of an apparent reversal in the order of time. That which occurs last, the motivation, is experienced first, often with a hundred details which flash past like lightning, and the shot is the result. What has happened? The ideas suggested by a particular state of our senses are misinterpreted as the cause of that state. As a matter of fact, we proceed in precisely the same manner when we are awake. The greater number of our general sensations, every kind of obstacle, pressure, tension, explosion in the interplay of the organs, and more particularly in the condition of the nervous sympathicus, stimulate our instinct of causality we will have a reason which will account for a feeling thus or thus, for feeling ill or well. We are never satisfied by merely ascertaining the fact that we feel thus or thus. We admit this fact, we become conscious of it, only when we have attributed it to some kind of motivation. Memory, which, in such circumstances, unconsciously becomes active, adduces former conditions of a like kind, together with the causal interpretations with which they are associated, but not their real cause. The belief that the ideas, the accompanying processes of consciousness, have been the causes, is certainly produced by the agency of memory. And in this way, we become accustomed to a particular interpretation of causes which, truth to tell, actually hinders and even utterly prevents the investigation of the proper cause. 5. The Psychological Explanation of the Above Fact To trace something unfamiliar back to something familiar is at once a relief, a comfort, and a satisfaction, while it also produces a feeling of power. 
the unfamiliar involves danger, anxiety, and care. The fundamental instinct is to get rid of these painful circumstances. First principle. Any explanation is better than none at all. Since, at bottom, it is only a question of shaking oneself free from certain oppressive ideas, the means employed to this end are not selected with overmuch punctiliousness. The first idea, by means of which the unfamiliar is revealed as familiar, produces a feeling of such comfort that it is held to be true. The proof of happiness, of power, as the criterion of truth. The instinct of causality is therefore conditioned and stimulated by the feeling of fear. Whenever possible, the question, why, should not only educe the cause as cause, but rather a certain kind of cause, a comforting, liberating, and reassuring cause. The first result of this need is that something known or already experienced and recorded in the memory is posited as the cause. The new factor, that which has not been experienced and which is unfamiliar, is excluded from the sphere of causes. Not only do we try to find a certain kind of explanation as the cause, but those kinds of explanations are selected and preferred which dissipate most rapidly the sensation of strangeness, novelty, and unfamiliarity. In fact, the most ordinary explanations. And the result is that a certain manner of postulating causes tends to predominate ever more and more, becomes concentrated into a system, and finally reigns supreme, to the complete exclusion of all other causes and explanations. The banker thinks immediately of business, the Christian of sin, and the girl of her love affair. 6. The whole domain of morality and religion may be classified under the rubric Imaginary Causes. The Quote, explanation, unquote, of general unpleasant sensations. These sensations are dependent upon certain creatures who are hostile to us. Evil spirits, the most famous example of this, the mistaking of hysterical women for witches. These sensations are dependent upon actions which are reprehensible. The feeling of sin, sinfulness is a manner of accounting for a certain physiological disorder. People always find reasons for being dissatisfied with themselves. These sensations depend upon punishment, upon compensation for something which we ought not to have done, which we ought not to have been. This idea was generalized in a more impudent form by Schopenhauer into that principle in which morality appears in its real colors, that is to say, as a veritable poisoner and slanderer of life. Quote, All great suffering, whether mental or physical, 
reveals what we deserve, for it could not visit us if we did not deserve it. Unquote. The World as Will and Idea, Volume 2, page 666. These sensations are the outcome of ill-considered actions, having evil consequences. The passions, the senses, postulated as causes, as guilty. By means of other calamities, distressing physiological conditions are interpreted as, quote, merited, unquote. The, quote, explanation, unquote of pleasant sensations. These sensations are dependent upon a trust in God. They may depend upon our consciousness of having done one or two good actions. A so-called, quote, good conscience, unquote, is a physiological condition, which may be the outcome of good digestion. They may depend upon the happy issue of certain undertakings, an ingenious mistake. The happy issue of an undertaking certainly does not give a hypochondriac, or a pascal, any general sensation of pleasure. They may depend upon faith, love, and hope, the Christian virtues. As a matter of fact, all these pretended explanations are but the results of certain states, and, as it were, translations of feelings of pleasure and pain into a false dialect. A man is in a condition of hopefulness because the dominant physiological sensation of his being is again one of strength and wealth. He trusts in God because the feeling of abundance and power gives him a peaceful state of mind. Morality and religion are completely and utterly parts of the psychology of error. In every particular case, Cause and effect are confounded, as truth is confounded with the effect of that which is believed to be true. Or a certain state of consciousness is confounded with the chain of causes which brought it about. 7. The Error of Free Will At present, we no longer have any mercy upon the concept free will. We know only too well what it is, the most egregious theological trick that has ever existed for the purpose of making mankind, quote, responsible, unquote, in a theological manner, that is to say, to make mankind dependent upon theologians. I will now explain to you only the psychology of the whole process of inculcating the sense of responsibility. Wherever men try to trace responsibility home to anyone, it is the instinct of punishment and of the desire to judge which is active. Becoming is robbed of its innocence when any particular condition of things is traced to a will, to intentions, and to responsible actions. The doctrine of the will was invented principally for the purpose of punishment, that is to say, with the intention of tracing guilt. The whole of ancient psychology, or the psychology of the will, is the outcome of the fact that its originators, who were the priests at the head of ancient communities, 
wanted to create for themselves a right to administer punishments, or the right for God to do so. Men were thought of as, quote, free, unquote, in order that they might be judged and punished, in order that they might be held guilty. Consequently, every action had to be regarded as voluntary, and the origin of every action had to be imagined as lying in consciousness. In this way, the most fundamentally fraudulent character of psychology was established as the very principle of psychology itself. Now that we have entered upon the opposite movement, now that we immoralists are trying with all our power to eliminate the concepts of guilt and punishment from the world once more, and to cleanse psychology, history, nature, and all social institutions and customs of all signs of these two concepts, we recognize no more radical opponents than the theologians, who with their notion of, quote, a moral order of things, unquote, still continue to pollute the innocence of becoming with punishment and guilt. Christianity is the metaphysics of the hangman. 8. What then alone can our teaching be? That no one gives man his qualities, neither God, society, his parents, his ancestors, nor himself. This nonsensical idea, which is at last refuted here, was taught as, quote, intelligible freedom, unquote, by Kant, and perhaps even as early as Plato himself. No one is responsible for the fact that he exists at all, that he is constituted as he is, and that he happens to be in certain circumstances and in a particular environment. The fatality of his being cannot be divorced from the fatality of all that which has been and will be. This is not the result of an individual intention, of a will, of an aim. There is no attempt at attaining to any ideal man, or ideal happiness, or ideal morality with him. It is absurd to wish him to be careering towards any sort of purpose. We invented the concept purpose. In reality, purpose is altogether lacking. One is necessary. One is a piece of fate. One belongs to the whole. One is in the whole. There is nothing that could judge, measure, compare, and condemn our existence. For that would mean judging, measuring, comparing, and condemning the whole. But there is nothing outside the whole. The fact that no one shall any longer be made responsible, that the nature of existence may not be traced to a causa prima, that the world is an entity neither as a sensorium nor as a spirit, this alone is the great deliverance, this alone is the innocence of becoming restored. The concept God 
has been the greatest objection to existence hitherto. We deny God, we deny responsibility in God. Thus alone do we save the world. End chapter 6 This recording is in the public domain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twilight of the Idols by Friedrich Nietzsche Chapter 7 The, quote, Improvers, unquote, of Mankind 1. You are aware of my demand upon philosophers that they should take up a stand beyond good and evil, that they should have the illusion of the moral judgment beneath them. This demand is the result of a point of view which I was the first to formulate, that there are no such things as moral facts. Moral judgment has this in common with the religious one, that it believes in realities which are not real. Morality is only an interpretation of certain phenomena, or, more strictly speaking, a misinterpretation of them. Moral judgment, like the religious one, belongs to a stage of ignorance, in which even the concept of reality, the distinction between real and imagined things, is still lacking, so that truth, at such a stage, is applied to a host of things which today we call imaginary. That is why the moral judgment must never be taken quite literally. As such, it is sheer nonsense. As a sign code, however, it is invaluable. To him at least who knows. It reveals the most valuable facts concerning cultures and inner conditions, which did not know enough to understand themselves. Morality is merely a sign language, merely symptomatology. One must already know what it is all about, in order to turn it to any use. 2. Let me give you one example, quite provisionally. In all ages, there have been people who wished to, quote, improve, unquote, mankind. This, above all, is what was called morality. But the most different tendencies are concealed beneath the same word, both the taming of the beast-man and the rearing of a particular type of man, have been called improvement. These zoological termini alone represent real things, real things of which the typical improver, the priest, naturally knows nothing and will know nothing. To call the taming of an animal improving it sounds to our ears almost like a joke. He who knows what goes on in menageries 
doubts very much whether an animal is improved in such places. It is certainly weakened. It is made less dangerous, and by means of the depressing influence of fear, pain, wounds, and hunger, it is converted into a sick animal. And the same holds good of the tamed man, whom the priest has improved. In the early years of the Middle Ages, during which the church was most distinctly and above all a menagerie, the most beautiful examples of the blonde beast were hunted down in all directions. The noble Germans, for instance, were improved. But what did this improved German, who had been lured to the monastery, look like after the process? He looked like a caricature of a man, like an abortion. He had become a sinner. He was caged up. He had been imprisoned behind a host of appalling notions. He now lay there, sick, wretched, malevolent even towards himself, full of hate for the instincts of life, full of suspicion in regard to all that is still strong and happy. In short, a Christian. In physiological terms, in a fight with an animal, the only way of making it weak may be to make it sick. The church understood this. It ruined man. It made him weak. But it laid claim to having improved him. 3. Now let us consider the other case, which is called morality. The case of the rearing of a particular race and species. The most magnificent example of this is offered by Indian morality and is sanctioned religiously as the Law of Manu. In this book, the task is set of rearing no less than four races at once, a priestly race, a warrior race, a merchant and agricultural race, and finally a race of servants, the Sudras. It is quite obvious that we are no longer in a circus watching tamers of wild animals in this book. To have conceived even the plan of such a breeding scheme presupposes the existence of a man who is a hundred times milder and more reasonable than the mere lion-tamer. One breathes more freely after stepping out of the Christian atmosphere of hospitals and prisons into this more salubrious, loftier, and more spacious world. What a wretched thing the New Testament is, beside Manu! What an evil odor hangs around it! But even this organization found it necessary to be terrible. Not this time in a struggle with the animal man, but with his opposite, the non-caste man, the hodgepodge man the Chandala. And once again, it had no other means of making him weak and harmless than by making him sick. It was the struggle with the greatest number. Nothing perhaps is more offensive to our feelings than these measures of security on the part of Indian morality. The Third Edict, for instance. Avidana Sastra, 1 which treats of impure vegetables, 
ordains that the only nourishment that the chandala should be allowed must consist of garlic and onions, as the holy scriptures forbid their being given corn or grain-bearing fruit, water, and fire. The same edict declares that the water which they need must be drawn neither out of rivers, wells, or ponds, but only out of the ditches leading to swamps, and out of the holes left by the footprints of animals. They are likewise forbidden to wash either their linen or themselves, since the water which is graciously granted to them must only be used for quenching their thirst. Finally, Sudra women are forbidden to assist Chandala women at their confinements, while Chandala women are also forbidden to assist each other at such times. The results of sanitary regulations of this kind could not fail to make themselves felt. Deadly epidemics and the most ghastly venereal diseases soon appeared, and in consequence of these again the law of the knife, that is to say, circumcision, was prescribed for male children, and the removal of the small labia from the females. Manu himself says, The chandala are the fruit of adultery, incest, and crime, this being the necessary consequence of the idea of breeding. Their clothes shall consist only of the rags torn from corpses, their vessels shall be the fragments of broken pottery, their ornaments shall be made of old iron, and their religion shall be the worship of evil spirits. Without rest they shall wander from place to place. They are forbidden to write from left to right, or to use their right hand in writing. The use of the right hand and writing from left to right are reserved to people of virtue to people of race. 4. These regulations are instructive enough. We can see in them the absolutely pure and primeval humanity of the Aryans. We learn that the notion, pure blood, is the reverse of harmless. On the other hand, it becomes clear among which people the hatred the Chandala hatred of this humanity has been immortalized, among which people it has become religion and genius. From this point of view the Gospels are document of the highest value, and the Book of Enoch is still more so. Christianity as sprung from Jewish roots, and comprehensible only as grown upon this soil, represents the counter-movement against that morality of breeding, of race, and of privilege. It is essentially an anti-Aryan religion. Christianity is the transvaluation of all Aryan values, the triumph of Chandala values, the proclaimed gospel of the poor and of the low, the general insurrection of all the downtrodden, the wretched, the bungled, and the botched against the race, the immortal revenge of the Chandala, as the religion of love. 5. 
the morality of breeding and the morality of taming in the means which they adopt in order to prevail are quite worthy of each other we may lay down as a leading principle that in order to create morality a man must have the absolute will to immorality this is the great and strange problem with which i have so long been occupied the psychology of the improvers of mankind a small and at bottom perfectly insignificant fact known as the pia fraus first gave me access to this problem the pia fraus the heirloom of all philosophers and priests who improve mankind neither manu nor plato nor confucius nor the teachers of judaism and christianity have ever doubted their right to falsehood they have never doubted their right to quite a number of other things to express oneself in a formula one might say all means which have been used heretofore with the object of making man moral were through and through immoral End chapter seven this recording is in the public domain say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.